talk about it as if it's a nonprofit or um, kind of a community organization. And, you know, all those things might be accurate, but one, one other picture that we have in the Bible of the church is family. So uh, for myself, even coming back here after a few weeks, it's exciting to be here with y'all. Um, if you've been tracking a little bit, we have this series we've been going through called Riches through the book of Romans uh, chapter 8, and we're going to actually continue that next week, and I had planned to go into the next couple of verses there, but um, just the past few days, some different reflections been having and different thoughts even on the church and, and where we're at, and kind of, this is some of even my own, uh, I think, wrestling through. I wanted to talk a little bit on community, so we have a word on community. I'm all about clever titles here. Um, we're going to have a word on community, so we'll just jump right into it. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We also have the verses up on the screen. Uh, the book of Acts, chapter 5. And let me read from verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let me pray for us. Lord, guide us right now as we seek to talk about the church, this community you've put together. But Lord, some so much more than just uh, people with like-minded interests or even religious affiliation. But Lord, a people who've been called from many different places to come together to be the church, called out from the world to be changed and transformed in you and to become family and, and, and friends, Lord. And that's, that's just an insane thing apart from your work. So Lord, we ask that you, we invite you right now to do that kind of work here. We readily acknowledge, God, that uh, we are a culture prone to take in much knowledge. And God, would you just wrench us away from that proclivity we have to take in this information? And, and it's, it just becomes another lecture series. But God, do that thing that only you can do where your Holy Spirit takes these words and it becomes food for our soul. Uh, it becomes a sword into our heart. It probes us and prods us and it draws us closer to you. We, we ask and plead that you would do that here, God. And we couldn't stay the same. So guide us in this time, and we, we thank you, Lord, for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, you know, as we look at this, this is honestly, and, um, you know, and I don't know actually how many of us might have been here, but this is actually one of the first messages we preached uh, from this passage from the, at the church when we started. And 
um, I'm kind of a dummy when it comes to that, right? Because this is not the kind of passage you would preach and tell people, hey, find out about this God, and yeah, people are like going to die in here. I mean, it's a little crazy. This is one of the more difficult passages to interpret because for a lot of us, it seems to go against uh, much of what we know about God. You know, because we read the story here, and, and God, he does not seem to be very loving or very gracious. I mean, I mean it just doesn't seem very friendly here. And part of the reason is that a lot of us, we've heard of a kind of Christianity that questions the very nature of hardship or struggle. Almost like if you're going through hard stuff, somehow you, you must be either disobedient to God or you're not doing things right. Or you just don't have enough faith. It's like the person who's sick and, and you know, a very well-meaning Christian perhaps will come to them and say, you know, sister, you just need to pray some more. I'm going to pray you have some more faith so you're not sick anymore. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's a question of faith. But I think a lot of it is also we look into scriptures and it talks about this nature of suffering. Why are there men and women who are crying out to God? Because their lives are giving them something to cry out about. And the Bible almost seems to assume that life is going to be filled with some hardship or struggling. But, but in the midst of that, we also know that God, he's a good father. And good daddies, they show love through things that don't often look like love through the kids' eyes. I mean, right now, <laughs> with, our, with our two younger children, I mean, we were on vacation, which is a lot of fun. But the thing about vacation is all boundaries get thrown out the window and kids go nuts. I mean, it's like kids going wild. They're crazy. We come back, little monsters running all around, around the house thinking it's still vacation. And we're trying to have them, like, still do what they did before. And, um, and our oldest especially, we have talks now. And it's really funny. And she'll talk to me. She's like, uh, Daddy, I don't really feel like you and Mom love me when you yell at us. It doesn't feel like you love us. I'm like, well, honey, you, you know we love you. She's like, I, I know you love me, but it really doesn't feel like it when you're yelling at us. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to explain to her, just because we're disciplining or loving or expressing this love does not take back any of the love we have for her. If anything, if we didn't love her, we'd say, go be your little monster selves. We don't care. Let someone else be bothered by it. No, we're your parents, so we're actually going to say some things and, and put ourselves in some uncomfortable places to have some of these talks, some of this discipline. H- having said that, it's important when we look at the story here to recognize that this, this occurrence in the early church, this is not random. This is not just some, oh, that's kind of cool. Let's include it in the first book about the church. You know, that's kind of weird. I mean, this happens in a very special time in the church's history. In fact, we would, if you look at history, we would say this is a really pivotal moment when the church, the people of God, is actually first called the church. The ecclesia, the the people who are called it. This is the first time that terminology is used. So this church is being formed right as we read it here. And, And it's helpful to know what comes before this incident to gain a little better understanding of what we read here. Because it's a little confusing, right? People falling down and dying. I mean, that... You probably wouldn't want to go to a church like that. I mean, if our website advertised, come and maybe get knocked out forever. I mean, no one would come to something like that, right? But here's what we read, and, and I think we have it up on the screen here, Acts 4.32, right before this. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what you see at this incredible picture of these first people that are, their hearts are being captured by this Jesus. They're, they're people from all different backgrounds. And as their lives are being transformed, this amazing thing happens. They become generous. This amazing thing happens as they start to look at other people. They're like, wow, you know, that, that person, they go to church with me, but they're really struggling right now. Hey, we're, we're, we've really been blessed. We have way more than we need. So people started selling their stuff so that they could give into this common collection to help out those maybe who are struggling a bit. I mean, it's beautiful stuff. It's really a tremendous picture of what happens when the news of Jesus grips our hearts. And you see this one particular man is, is highlighted, Joseph, who we, some of us might also know by the name Barnabas, that he sold his field and he took all that money and he said, hey, apostles, it's all yours. You do with it as you need. Help out someone who could need this. Great generosity. And guys, we need to know that because that helps us to understand what happens here then with Ananias and Sapphira. Um, because you have to understand, this was not directly just about money. I mean, this, this whole issue, this was not just about money. And I, you know, I guess if you gave me enough time, I could preach a heck out of a sermon about don't skimp on God in the offering. You know, don't you dare today. You make sure you give every penny in your pocket because who knows what's going to happen. Trip out the door. You know, I, I could preach the heck out of a sermon like that. I don't know if that would necessarily be accurately talking about what's here, though. Because um, I think it, it could be understandable to think, yeah, this must be a commandment, commandment of God. You know, they, God must command you need to sell everything you have and give everything. And these two got caught breaking the law. I mean, the truth is there is no requirement that was given to say to be part of this first church, you need to do this. There, there was no requirement like that. The problem it was, they chose to pass themselves off in a way that was not accurate. They chose to look a way that was not true. So the, the deeper problem was not them breaking a law about generosity. It was that they weren't speaking the truth, that they weren't being real. It's that they were putting on a false kind of show, and they were trying to look a certain way to receive the benefits of looking that holy. Because they saw this cat Joseph. They saw Barnabas. They're like, yo, Barney sold everything and he gave it. Look how everyone's respecting him now. Man, everyone is like, you know, lifting up Barnabas and this guy Joseph. Everyone thinks he's the man. Hey, Sapphira, what if we did that? What if we did? Imagine how everyone's going to celebrate us. Imagine how great they'll think. Man, everyone's going to be talking about us. We are going to make the front page. We'll be made leaders in the church. We'll be given status. But yeah, but let's not give it all. No one will know. Let, let's just give enough that it makes us look good here. And we see what happens as a result. But if you're like me, and maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but at least for me, I, I read the story. I'm like, Come on, man, that still seems a little harsh. I mean, I mean, it really, to me, it seems a little harsh because the truth is if I asked how many of us in this room have been like totally real with everything since we've been here, I mean, we'd all get knocked out, right? I mean, we'd, we'd dwindle pretty quickly here, like boom, boom, boom. I mean, if it's a question of how truthful or honest we've been, we, we're all in deep trouble here. But again, this incident had a very intentional purpose. Like I mentioned before, this is a critical point in this early church. And later, 
If you read through Acts, you're going to see the opposition does come from outside. Christians, people who would say they follow Jesus, they actually end up having their lives taken from them because they are committed to Christ. The church gets scattered. People start getting taken to prison because they follow Jesus Christ. The thing is, as much as uh, humankind is always meant for persecution to destroy the church, as much as people have always looked at, hey, how are we going to destroy this movement of God? How are we going to destroy these crazy Jesus people, these Jesus, these wacky like Jesus freaks? How are we going to do it? Hey, here it is. Let's just kill their lives. Let's just make their lives miserable. Let's take away their money. Let's break up their families. Let's make their children horrible. Let's do all these different things. That's, that'll kill the church. But they, they don't know that God's got a different kind of economy, that actually when persecution comes, it actually works to strengthen the church and to send the church in power. And, and it's the difference between looking at things from like a car wreck versus cancer. Because sometimes a car wreck seems very like crazy and you see all the results right away. Whereas cancer, it can kind of grow from the inside and you might not even know about it for like a long time before it takes its effects. I mean, you can pray about it if you, if you know Pastor Gary Glanville from Northwest Baptist, one of our supporting churches. He actually just went in uh, for, I think, a medical test like a few weeks ago, and he just was having some stomach pain. They found a tumor, like a, a big like tumor in there, and they did surgery and took it out. I mean, that's the nature of cancer. He had no clue, but that's the way the cancer operates. It starts small, and it just grows and grows and grows, and you might not even be aware of it. And something like what we see with Ananias and Sapphira, and this is not to make light of cancer, but it could have been like a cancer in the life of this new movement called the church. So to you and me, as harsh as it might seem, what it accomplished was that all these people in this movement, they received a very early, very poignant, very deep message of how life needed to look like for this new people of God. That this early group of believers, they learned that dishonesty, that looking on the surface very pious, even if it's not really who you are inside, that very superficial kind of religious-looking behavior, it could not be a part of the church if she hoped to be all that she was intended to be. That if the church was really going to be all that she was in its expression and love and reaching out to the world and showing dead people hope and life found in Christ, they could not hope to try to have just surface-looking religious behavior. It couldn't be there. And, And the people who were all there witnessing this, there was a reason they were there, to see it for themselves, but to also pass these stories on for those who would come. For all those who would call themselves the church, they were supposed to know the story and share it. And I don't know about you all, but how your families work, but families, you know, my family and others I know, um, a lot of times when you tell stories of the past, you kind of um, eliminate or you edit out, really. It's like we have an editor in every family, right? When you're telling the stories, you just don't tell certain stories about, like, that uncle. Or you don't tell stories about, like, fourth grade because that was, you you know, we kind of um, edit out certain parts of our stories to make things look a little better. So when we look here um, at the biblical story of the church, there's a reason this was not edited out as kind of shocking as it looked. This is meant to be a lesson for us in modern times as well. 
And, and again, thankfully, hopefully we're not going to have to learn it from one of us every week killing over because we've, you know, been dishonest or whatnot because, you know, we're not that huge. So things would end pretty quickly here. But what we can take to heart is that our community, any community, we cannot afford to play this game. We cannot afford to play this game of kind of the superficial um, where we just kind of point to our external actions as the expression of our faith. And that's the very epitome of counterfeit religion, right? Where um, we look at what we do and we look at the stuff everyone else can see and, and we kind of say, look at, what, look at who I am. Look at how, how mature I am. Look at how, I, how much I've done. But if we're serious about following Jesus, our church here at the village, we need to be a place where it's okay not to be okay. I mean, we just have to be a place where it's okay not to be okay. I mean, it has to be safe. It has to be a place where we can, anyone can walk in and just go like, I have just failed miserably this week. I mean, I have sinned in ways I never knew were possible. I mean, I think I invented new sin this week and it was crazy. And not have everyone do that awkward like, okay, where do you guys want to go to lunch today? I mean, it, we, we have to have a place where, where we embrace brokenness and real hardships and real struggles and real suffering. If not, we're going to be a place where we have no choice but to look to those external trivialities. I mean, if we're not going to be a place, a community that opens ourselves up to the reality of what we're going through, we're going to have no choice but to look to those things that we can produce. Because what that does is it, it allows us to go, see, see, look at what I've done. Look, I'm a faithful religious person. And, and what happens, we start to get by with that. And we also start to get by with that with each other. And the danger of that is that we look at one another, and rather than really getting to one another's lives, we just kind of see, oh, yeah, they're still coming to church pretty regularly on Sundays. Or, oh, yeah, they don't look like they've been in jail in the past month or so. Or, oh, yeah, they look like they're kind of like reading the Bible. Oh, they come to Bibles. Okay, they must be okay. Rather than this culture saying, you know what? We're not going to just be acceptable by what we can see with our eyes. Let's go deeper to see what's really going on there. Because you and I know if you're as skilled at the game as I am, I can play a good game. I can look like Mr. Holy Moly, Jesus Freak, Bible Thumper, say all the right things. Say, do I can do it. But it can be totally masking what's really going on underneath in my heart. Because the gospel... The good news of Jesus, what it does, it moves us to be able to say, here's who I am. This is who I am. I am broken. I'm a sinner. I am just, my, my life is jacked up. I need help. And the gospel allows us to say that honestly and to say, I am wounded. I am hurt. I've been through stuff. I've done stuff. I need a healer. And to know that Jesus loves to bring in broken people. And guys, this kind of honesty, this kind of truth, it's freeing for a community that we're trying to be. Because um, if we get away from just the external superficial stuff, it will cause us to have a deeper relationship with God, but it'll also allow us to have a deeper relationship with one another. Because um, I, I wholeheartedly believe, and I, you need to hear this part right, otherwise you're going to get some really bad theology. You're gonna, if you stop right now, or if you stop in a little bit, you, you might get some really bad thoughts. Um, I totally affirm that God alone is the one who forgives you. You do not need to go to another man to tell you you're forgiven. You don't need to go to another human being to tell you, oh, your sins are cleansed now, you're okay. You don't need that at all. 
Um, God alone is the one who forgives you through Jesus Christ. It's his sacrifice. I, I believe in all those stuff. But I also believe that as people who are created by God with a certain intent and design, we experience true freedom by confessing our sins to one another. Hear me again. You are not forgiven in God's eyes because you confess your sins to another person. Only God can do that. But in our psyche, in our psychology, sometimes again, our psychology is not fully there with our theology. We can be fully forgiven by God in our theology. We can fully know, yes, oh, God forgives me. Jesus alone, oh, he forgives my sins. He shed his blood. Oh, I and totally believe that. But in our psychology, in our thoughts, we can still live in this guilt and in this shame and in this remorse. And often part of that is sharing ourselves with other people and being honest with how we might have sinned and confessing our sin. And I think I, um, there's power in, in doing this one. I think I've shared this illustration before, but I think it's just really applicable, so I wanted to read it again here. But this is written by a man named Jonathan Acuff. Um, and he writes, Have you ever been in a small group of people that confess safe sins? Someone will say, I need to be honest with everyone tonight. I need to have full disclosure and submit myself in honesty. Like ODB from the Wu-Tang Clan, I need to give it to you raw. So, so brace yourself for this crazy moment of authenticity. And the person takes a deep breath and says, I haven't been reading my Bible enough. Ugh, you dirty, dirty sinner. I'm not even sure I can be in a small group with you anymore. Not reading your Bible enough, that's disgusting. And then once he's gone, someone else will catch the safe sin bug too and will say, Yo, I need to be real too. I haven't been praying enough. Two of you in the same room? Wow, free shows. I can barely stand it. But what happens when people start confessing safe sins is that everyone else in the room starts concealing their real junk. I mean, if I was surrounded by confessions like that in the eighth grade, I would have instantly known I couldn't follow the not reading my Bible enough guy with my own story. So, this weekend when it was snowing, I told my parents I was going to the dump to sled, but instead I was really just digging through a 200-foot mountain of warm trash looking for pornography. And the same principle would have applied to me in my late 20s. I wouldn't have been honest sharing my struggles with internet porn if someone else confessed their safe enough for small group sins. And that sucks. It sucks that as broken as we all are, as desperate as we all are for a savior, we feel compelled to clean ourselves up when we get around each other. But if I stop writing tomorrow, this will be the lesson I cling to the most. When you go first, you give everyone in your church or your community or your small group or your blog the gift of going second. It's so much harder to be first. No one knows what's off limits yet, and you're setting the boundaries with your words. You're throwing yourself on the honesty grenade and taking whatever fallout that comes with it. Going second is so much easier, and the ease only grows exponentially as people continue to share. But it has to be started somewhere. Someone has to go first. I think it has to be us. We're called to give the gift of second to the people in our lives, to live the truth, to share the truth, to be the truth. Let's give the gift of going second. And I think there's some real truth being spoken there. Because for a lot of us, and maybe this is your church background, honestly, church is like the least authentic place we go to in our week, right? For a lot of us, that's our background. You are like, 
honest and er- but church i mean that's when you really got to put on your good act and you got to be a certain way or oh you can't disappoint mama and daddy like that or you you know it, that's where we're almost the most fake in our lives so this is a radically different approach saying what would it look like for the people of god the people of god gathered to preach to one another this truth that jesus takes us as we are not in how we can create ourselves to be so that he can make us into what he really would like to in wholeness and perfection I mean, guys, this is why you never, like during the Olympics or like during basketball finals or sports, you never see those feel-good stories, you know, during the commercial breaks and then after they come back and before the game starts, they do like the little personal interest stories. You never hear it, yeah, you know, little Tommy so-and-so was just perfect in everything his whole life and he was always groomed to be an Olympic athlete and one day he decided, I'm going to go to the Olympics. So next year he went to the Olympics and he qualified and he made it and now he's going to get a gold medal. I mean, no one likes those stories. People love the stories to say, yo, this dude was like jacked up from the beginning and there was no hope at all. You should have seen his family and there's no way there's, he should be able to do this. But somehow he overcame and now look, he's about to win a gold medal and everyone's like crying and it's getting dusty in the room because there's a part of us that is drawn to stories of hope and redemption. There's something within us that's clamoring to say, wow, is there hope for me too? There's a reason why when we do things like open mic, I guarantee you the person that comes up in and shares your stuff, as scary as it might be for you to share your stuff, and says, man, there's no way I can do this. What am I doing? Why are my feet tearing me up there? Oh, no. What am I doing? I can't do Oh, my goodness. What did I just share? And you've got that fear. You've got that, oh, my goodness. Now I've got this big bullseye on me. Like, people know who I am. There's no hiding. And you ever wonder why after service, that person has, like, five people waiting to talk to them? <laughs> Always. It's because we are a wounded people who've been taught to hide our whole life. We are a scarred people who've been taught that safety, security is found in never letting anyone know your weakness, your scars, your hurts, the ways that you have been just distraught, depressed, hide it all, succeed more, get a better job, work harder, get prettier, get more buff, get a nicer car, do whatever you can to mask those things so that no one will think that you're wounded and broken inside when inside most of us are just wounded and saying, does anyone else struggle with this? Is anyone else hurting? Is anyone else wounded? Is anyone else tired? Is anyone else exhausted? Is anyone else just beaten down from trying to be good? And we're people who are all looking for hope. And when we hear from another person, when we hear from another person's story of what the preacher's talking about, when we hear someone that we know getting up or in a conversation talking about the stuff that the preacher's talking about every week, and they're saying, wow, this stuff really works. It's really taking root in that person's life. Wow, God does heal. God does love like broken people. He loves reclaiming things that everyone else thinks is for the trash pit. Wow, God loves people who've always been trying to fix themselves their whole life. And he loves to show them that only he can repair them. Wow, this God really works. And we end up preaching hope to one another. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we talk about things like community groups. And, you know, I, I think as a church, we're just beyond that point where we're trying to, like, sell things. You know, and maybe, maybe you're there with me. Like, often in church, doesn't it feel like, oh, here's the next great program. And here's our nice little infomercial to show you why you should want to do this thing. I think we're beyond that. We're just at a place where we're saying, man, we're desperate. 
We're needy. We need God's presence. And he's provided us these groups to get into groups with other people to talk about stuff like the addictions group or other men group, women's groups, whatever it might be. But to get in a place where we get beyond the superficiality and start to get to some real business. Start to rip away those things we've always protected ourselves. In one way, in one way, one pastor talks about we need to be a place where we move away from rows into circles. That we need to move all of us away from rows and into circles. And in some ways, Sundays are very valuable because we come in in the rows and that's good and we get taught and we sing and all that. But eventually, we also need to be able to move these row relationships into circle relationships where you're face-to-face with another person and you're talking with them and maybe more than just talking to them, you're hearing from them and your heart is being moved in ways that you can be compassionate for someone else. And, And I guess... Part of the reason why I felt to talk about these things, even coming back from uh, some time away, again, four weeks, man, it went by quick, but I realized four weeks is, that's like a pretty big chunk of time for like Matt Metzger's baby. That's like majority of their life so far, right? Four weeks, that's a big, big chunk of time. Um, one of my hopes for our church here at the village, and, and it's funny because I was reading on some stuff before I went on vacation, that in some church culture, and I'm really glad it's not ours, in some church culture, especially with these very big-name preachers, like, they put the calendar out ahead of time when, the, like, the main preacher's going to be away for, like, the summer or whatnot. And that's basically known in the church as, like, vacation time where you don't have to come because the main speaker's not here during these times. I'm like, really? I mean, that's, like, a reality in some churches? And, and my prayer, my hope for our community here at the village is that we would never be a people who are centered on one personality or one particular, like, individual unless that happens to be Jesus. But that we're a community of people and that all the ministry doesn't come down to one person having to do it all and one expert who's really gifted at these things who can draw a crowd, but that our church would be the church. I mean, the village would be the church ministering to one another. It would be these circles of people who are preaching redemption and hope and and just um, the goodness of God in the midst of a world that sometimes seems to say God's not good and we're speaking that to one another because I don't want that burden. I mean, honestly, some people talk about preachers being the ones that make everyone come and draw. That's not a good gig to have because when people start leaving, you know where that comes back to? Oh, the preacher. I mean, but aside from these psychoanalytical things, I think biblically, that's not a picture of the church. Biblically, you are the church. Biblically, where ministry happens is between those of us sitting in this room. Conversations that we have with one another. Dinners that are shared. Where things that even with people you've talked with for years, like on a casual basis, you start to really, I never knew that about where you're coming from. Praise God that he can work like that. And we start to get beyond some of these superficial pictures of what some of us have always lived in. No wonder so many of us hate church. Or no wonder so many of us feel so uncomfortable. Because we've never been taught Jesus takes us just as we are so that he can make us into who he intended to be. So for us to grow fully in maturity and in death, uh, love, it can't have any hypocrisy. I mean, it can't have any pretense. Guys, There's no need to impress anyone in this place. There's no need to impress me. There's there's no need to have to be ruled by what others think of you, how others perceive you. Rather, we can live with this knowledge that God sees everything. I mean, for some of us, that's that's a little uncomfortable knowing that, that God sees everything. 
He knows everything about you. He knows everything that you have been so skilled to kind of pack away into another corner of your life. He knows all of that. And yet what he says to you is, I love you. I want you. Be mine. Follow me. He knows all that. And and we allow the true light of God to speak into those areas of our life and reveal where we need genuine change. I mean, it's that place in life where you come to, where you recognize, where grace reveals, man, I am actually far more needy of God than I ever thought I was. I actually didn't know I needed God this much. And that walks hand in hand with recognizing, man, I never knew God's love was that furiously pursuing me. I never knew it was that much. And those two things walk hand in hand. And guys, that's where real healing That's where real growth starts to happen. And that's where we can start to move from polite acquaintances sitting in rows to to family who are connecting in circles. You know, where we can actually be honest with how we're broken. And how we can, and part of that being honest is not just so you can like have a free for all, like, oh, this is who I am, but that you can be honest honest enough to know, yeah, this is who I am and this is how God loves me. So now you can speak into my life and you can look at real issues going on. You can look at things that are happening in my life and I don't have to be afraid of what you think, but I can hear it. I can hear, yeah, I am jacked up. Wow, thank you for telling me that. And I can actually see that as God trying to work in my life because I don't have to fear you anymore, but we can be real with one another because that's what we have in Christ. That's what we have in Jesus that's what we know in Jesus, this, this amazing God who became man, who came with us. And the truth is every single one of us, if we are held to account for what's going on in our intentions, we are all in deep doo-doo. <laughs> I mean, none of us are able to walk without blame. But Jesus himself, the only one who could walk without blame, he was the one who was actually killed and struck down of his own accord so that you and I could be found in the freedom when we receive Christ, when we follow him, when we say, I can't believe Jesus loved me that much that he would do that, that he would receive that upon himself. So again, these are some just, just thoughts that I've been having, again, from some, some things, just even reflecting on our community as our church here at the village. I want to, again, I want to encourage you. Maybe it's a group. Maybe it's not a group. At our church, I think groups provide a good way to have that, but that you find even a few people where you can start to get out of these rows as good and helpful as they are and start to move into these circles of family together. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, um, 